City revenues took a massive hit as a result of the COVID-19 outbreak. The Lightfoot administration sketched out a breakdown of which funds were hardest hit. And downtown has a huge oversupply of homes for sale. Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, joins the podcast today to talk about why. The biggest problem right now, the biggest logjam, is in those areas that really that touch Michigan Avenue, right, where there's been a lot of marching, there's been a lot of looting. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist. It's Tuesday, September 1st. In these uncertain times, it's important to have people you trust by your side. When 11,000 local business owners needed a Paycheck Protection Program loan, they turned to their Wintrust banker to secure funding because that's a relationship they can count on. Businesses are navigating some of the biggest challenges they will ever face. Wintrust is here to answer their calls. They'll answer yours too. Start the conversation at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. You're listening to Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. We're joined now by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. Dennis, we don't usually talk by phone. We're, we're going to talk again later this week, but there's a story today that I, I couldn't wait until Thursday to talk with you about, and that is how downtown has a huge oversupply of homes for sale. Tell me what's going on. Uh, yeah, this is it's really pronounced, in especially in Streeterville and across the river from Streeterville, Lake Shore East. Um, less so in all the other neighborhoods that touch the loop. Uh, real estate inventory is a measure of how much is on the market divided by how much sold in the pace of sales is about a month. Um, so, and Chicago wide right now, there's about three months inventory. That's fine. Lakeshore East, there's 15 months inventory. Um, Streeterville, there's 11 and a half months inventory. As you work your way counterclockwise around the loop from there, um, it gets lower. It's about eight in River North and the Gold Coast. It's about five in the West Loop and the South Loop. So the the biggest problem right now, the biggest logjam is in those areas that really that touch Michigan Avenue, right, where there's been a lot of marching, there's been a lot of looting, Um at the same time, these are condo-heavy neighborhoods where I may not really want to live anymore because I need. I'm, we're we're both working at home. We need outdoor space. The parks have been closed. That sort of thing. So a condo may no longer work. I'd rather have a house, whether in the city or in the suburbs. Uh, so what we're seeing is in the past couple of months, a massive logjam has developed again, especially right there at the mouth of the Chicago River on the north side uh, in Streeterville, 11 and a half months, and on the south side in Lakeshore East, 15 months. And that is considerable. We, I've done stories when places like Lake Forest, Burr Ridge, the Barringtons had more than a year's inventory. We're now talking about that in two of the what we think of as the most desirable parts of the city. I know you mentioned 3%, but generally speaking, what are the average numbers connected to inventory? What's normal? Well, again, citywide right now, it's about three. So you can compare those figures to, I, I think it's three and a half months. And in our story, there's a list of neighborhoods where it's less than three right now. But generally in real estate, in residential real estate, four to six months inventory is what's considered a balanced market, a healthy market. There's enough um, inventory to supply a nice long run of sales and more will come in. Um, so uh, if, if four to six is good, 
then in Lakeshore East where it's 15, you're at uh, more than twice, if not three times healthy inventory right now. And so what does that mean long term to have this kind of inventory downtown? Well, we don't know what it's going to mean long term because, you know, turn around in a month and perhaps it's all been absorbed. I doubt it uh, because uh, what we're seeing, what the agents in the neighborhoods have told me is it's both a problem of supply and of demand. It's uh, a lot of people putting their properties on the market and not a lot of people buying them. So we don't know how long this backlog will last. We do. I do think it will get worse. A couple of agents told me that once we get past Labor Day and we get into that traditional fall selling season, even though every every the seasons have all been sort of pushed into strange places by COVID, there is this sort of traditional mindset, I get my property on right after Labor Day in order to get it sold before winter when everything looks terrible. So there's a strong possibility that these high inventory figures will go even higher shortly after Labor Day. Okay, and then thinking big picture here, you and I have been talking on previous episodes about this narrative that's floating around that COVID is perhaps sending people to the suburbs. And we've said many times we have to just kind of wait and see what the data says. Could this be an early indicator that that perhaps is the case? Don't know. Um, That is a very popular narrative that a lot of people use, Uh, not only in Chicago, but all over the country. There's talk of people abandoning the city. All we can say right now with the data we have is there are a lot of purchases in the suburbs right now, and there's this log jam downtown. We can't yet couple those two together and say everybody's selling downtown to get to the suburbs, in part because I don't know who the people are listing these properties, and I because there are thousands of them, and so I haven't looked up all of them. And we don't know where they plan to buy when and if their property sells or if they've already bought. So all we can say for sure is, Boy, the suburbs are going red hot, especially sort of there have been some huge sales along the lakefront on the North Shore and elsewhere. Um, And we can say big backlog of properties uh, downtown. But again, we can't yet say we can't yet join that story that everybody's telling or hoping to tell that people are leaving the city for the suburbs. Right, because you would need that kind of data of asking every single buyer and seller what, what their, you know, what what their motivation was. Right. The other thing we can do is a year from now, you and I have talked about this, a year from now, two years from now, if we see that suddenly or that over time, those markets in the suburbs have just continued to be really strong and the city, the downtown neighborhoods have been really weak, then we may be able to draw some conclusions. And we also will have records that show where people came from and went to. At the moment, all we know is this is what's on the market and this is what is sold. So, you know, a year or two from a year or two years from now, maybe we'll be saying, yeah, the city emptied out and everybody ran for the suburbs. I'm doubtful about that. Uh, but that is something we we will have to watch over the course of the next year or two years. And so what does that mean for downtown? For someone who is looking to move downtown, does that potentially mean that's kind of a buyer's market? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. A couple of agents told me, you know, now's the time. Um, one of I should say one of the groups of sellers I heard about is investors. Uh, so not necessarily homeowners, but people who either lived in the unit and now no longer do and rent it out or bought it expressly to rent it out. Um, and there's a lot of there's a lot coming on the market with them. And those are people who those are sellers who don't have as much of an emotional tie 
who wouldn't say, I paid a dollar for the property. I put 50 cents into improvements. I need to sell it for a dollar 51. They would say, this thing isn't performing for me. I got to sell. So they would be likely to offer things at a, at a very healthy, and by healthy, I mean low price. And the other thing is, I mean, it's a simple rule of, of supply and demand. If there is this much inventory right now and you want to get your property sold, really the only way you're going to do it is to cut the price to make it even more competitive in a very crowded field. So yes, for people who want to move downtown or who want to move within downtown already living there, uh, prices are going to be good. And they may, especially if inventory grows, as I just said, um, get even better. And so all that said, I feel like there's there we end every conversation with saying this is gonna this is a thing we're just gonna have to wait and see how it plays out. Of course, there's so many questions still ahead uh, in this in this strange year. But what is the stuff that you're going to be looking at connected to this topic most immediately? Maybe in the next just few weeks or, or months. You know, I I get this data every month on where sales are, and the farther we get away from the pandemic or from the shutdown period of the pandemic. The, the more solid the figures really are because everything was just wacky at that time. And so what I'm watching is where have sales boomed? We will see, you know, which there may be certain parts of the suburbs that have benefited more than others. One of the things I just mentioned is these North Shore sales. And, and I really do mean on the shore. I mean, the mansions that have lake frontage. There's been a lot of that recently. But what other what towns are doing really well? What towns don't seem to be benefiting? One thing we're guessing is that uh, the farther out places like the Barringtons that were doing badly, that had weak markets for a long time, they may have had those weak markets in part because commuting to all these great downtown jobs that were created in the last decade was so difficult. Well, now if I can work at home or I can work at home most days, then commuting becomes not quite such a bear in my day. So maybe I can live in Barrington, even if my office is downtown, because I don't have to show up that, that often. Um, so we may see, and some agents are already saying we are seeing, a lot more buying in those distant suburbs that people were, were not buying in in recent years. Again, things we will have to wait and see, but I appreciate you taking time to talk this through today, and I will talk to you on Thursday for the live stream. Great. See you then. Coming up, Amazon drivers are hanging smartphones in trees in the Chicago suburbs. You heard that right. We'll talk about why that is and more after this. Chicago Comes Back provides resilient leadership insights to help your business move forward from the pandemic. Delivered on Thursdays, this free e-newsletter features up-to-date information and guidance for Chicago's businesses. Sign up at chicagobusiness.com slash Chicago Comes Back. Mayor Lori Lightfoot laid out her budget forecast, noting a nearly $2 billion gap between this fiscal year and next. But the mayor also offered the first hard numbers around how much and which types of revenues have tumbled most since COVID-19 impacted the local economy. The city says in its 2020 forecast that total corporate fund revenues are projected to end 2020 over $886 million below budgeted levels, down $3.5 billion or an overall 20% drop. 
Here's some more numbers. According to the 2021 forecast, transportation taxes are expected to come in nearly $175 million under 2020 budget expectations. Hotels, given that major conferences in the city have been canceled, saw a 74% drop in expected business tax revenues in 2020. Citywide fine and fee revenues from parking and red light enforcement are down 34% from the same period in 2019. And recreation taxes, which includes amusement taxes charged at sporting and theater events, as well as on cable, streaming, and online gaming services, are estimated to drop to a loss of more than $53 million. However, cannabis sales slightly exceeded expectations, while alcohol sales are estimated to be down 12% in the first half of 2020 due to restaurant and bar closures. Lightfoot said she's closed $550 million of this year's deficit by, quote, leveraging $350 million in federal COVID relief funds and another $200 million from refinancing, which still leaves a budget gap of more than $333 million. But for more detail on this story, as well as on many others, head to chicagobusiness.com for more. The global aviation industry has racked up more than 350,000 job losses in just the past six months, with more pain on the way. That, according to new research that looks into the pandemic's impact on the sector. According to Rowlin Haler, a co-founder of consulting group Five Arrow, which compiled the study, total job losses could approach half a million positions after including some 25,000 cuts that don't fit into the main categories of airlines, aerospace manufacturers, and airports, and another 95,000 jobs that are threatened but not formally announced. The report also says the airlines are cutting more than 200,000 workers after months of groundings wiped out earnings, threatening the survival of many carriers. With COVID-19 cases surging in hotspots and some restrictions being phased back in, passenger demand continues to be low. Ann Haler said airports themselves may need to increase job cuts as the extent of the slump becomes clearer. More than 80 percent of the job cuts announced so far have been in Europe and North America, even though the study shows that the two regions together accounted for just under half of 2019 passenger traffic. So while that figure may be higher because the biggest plane makers and many key suppliers are in fact based in the West, Haler also said that losses in the Asian Pacific area in particular seem implausibly small, with more than half the total coming just from Australia and New Zealand. Asian companies may be more reluctant to fire workers, but the absence of data from China and elsewhere is a major issue, he said. Leading carriers such as Cathay Pacific and Singapore Airlines have also yet to announce permanent plans to reduce headcount while taking government furlough money and are expected to do so in coming weeks and months. More than 50,000 positions were eliminated across the sector in August, with the trend line suggesting that there are many more to come. Haler also said the five arrow tallies don't include potential moves, such as more than 20,000 added reductions at Gulf Giant Emirates and tens of thousands in the U.S., where furloughed workers have been put on notice that their work could permanently disappear. So here's a thing that's apparently happening. Amazon drivers are hanging smartphones in trees in the Chicago suburbs. Why, you ask? Well, here's the deal. So according to people familiar with the matter, contract delivery drivers are indeed putting smartphones in trees near Amazon delivery stations and Whole Foods stores in the Chicago suburbs to get an edge over rivals seeking orders. Drivers have been posting both photos and videos on social media to try to figure out what technology is being used to receive offers faster than those lacking the advantage. And some have complained to Amazon that drivers have found a way to rig the company's delivery dispatch system. And here's how that works. So someone places 
places several devices in a tree close to the location where deliveries originate. And then drivers in on the plot sync their phones with the ones in the tree and wait nearby for an order pickup. And the reason for the placement, according to experts and people with direct knowledge of Amazon's operations, is to take advantage of the handset's proximity to the station, combined with software that constantly monitors Amazon's dispatch network to get a split-second head start on competing drivers for accepting the gig. So much in the way that even milliseconds can mean millions to hedge funds that use robo-traders, a smartphone in a tree can mean getting a $15 delivery route before someone else does. An app called Amazon Flex that works kind of like Uber lets drivers make deliveries in their own cars. And for many with other jobs, it's a way to earn extra money in their spare time. But with joblessness rising and unemployment payments shrinking, competition for gig work has stiffened, and now more people rely on it as their primary source of income. And unlike hourly employees who get paid even when work is slow, gig workers, of course, only get paid by the job. So securing a route through the smartphone app is the first step to making money. And most flex routes last from two to four hours and can be scheduled in advance. But what's happening at Whole Foods in the Chicago area is still even a little different than that. Drivers are competing for fast delivery instant offers, which require an immediate response and typically take between 15 and 45 minutes to complete. Instant offers are dispatched by an automated system that detects when drivers are nearby through their smartphones. So when drivers see an instant offer, they only have a few minutes to accept the delivery or lose it to someone else. And in an urban area with good cell tower coverage and lots of Wi-Fi hotspots, that means a phone in a tree outside a Whole Foods door would get a delivery offer even before drivers sitting in their car just a few blocks away. According to Bloomberg, Amazon said it would investigate the matter but would be unable to divulge the outcome of its inquiry to delivery drivers. McDonald's has been hit by a lawsuit by more than 50 former franchisees in the U.S. who allege racial discrimination, saying that they were driven out of business after being pushed by the company to set up shop in high crime areas and that because they're black, that they were also denied financial help that was extended to white franchisees. So according to a copy of the complaint filed in Chicago federal court, the franchisees were steered into areas with low volume sales and high security and insurance costs and were refused favorable franchise terms because McDonald's unfairly graded their performance. The 52 franchisees are seeking as much as $5 million in damages for each of more than 200 stores they collectively operated. McDonald's said in a statement that it denies the allegations that the franchisees were unable to succeed because of any discrimination by the company. McDonald's said in July that it would step up efforts to fight systemic racism at the company by addressing any hiring biases, increasing the diversity of its leadership, and by doing more to attract diverse franchisees. And the company's also come under fire in recent years for allegedly failing to prevent widespread sexual harassment in its restaurants and more recently for doing too little to protect its workers from COVID-19 as well as from violent customers. And the company is currently in a legal battle with ex-CEO Steve Easterbrook as it tries to reclaim $37 million of his compensation after he was found to have allegedly carried on sexual relationships with subordinates. Lawyers for the franchisees said in a statement, quote, for decades, McDonald's ruthless, one-sided bargaining steered blacks toward the oldest, most decrepit stores in the toughest neighborhoods routinely rejected by white franchisees. Continuing, quote, this severely limited opportunities for expansion and growth and far too often set in place a chain of events, low cash flow, decreased equity, debt and bankruptcy that led to financial ruin. The franchisees said in their complaint that a historic high of about 400 black McDonald's franchisees in 19 1998 has dropped to less than 200 today because of the revenue shortfall. 
McDonald's said in its statement that black franchisees, including the former franchisees in the complaint, operate restaurants in all types of communities and said that, quote, while McDonald's may recommend locations, franchisees ultimately select the locations they wish to purchase. The company also said there had been consolidation in the total number of franchise organizations across all demographic groups in the last several years and that, quote, the overall representation of black operators in the McDonald's system is broadly unchanged. And that's Crane's Daily just for now. Our continuous news feed lives at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to our guest today, Dennis Rotkin. Be sure to subscribe to these conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to find your audio on demand. And find hashtag Cranes Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And let's continue talking there about these and other business stories. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.